When I was a kid, I always loved the story of David and Goliath. Uh, it was one of my favorites, especially the way Mrs. Hibner told it. The only thing I was bothered by as a kid is I wanted somebody to get clobbered right there in the Sunday school class and to go down. In a weird way, I wanted to see blood. I mean, it was a bad story, and somebody had to go, and I wanted to see that. And so when I would go home, after Mrs. Hibner would tell us the story, um, I would reenact that. I was David. You knew I wouldn't be Goliath, right? And... Um, I would go out and I'd get stones and we had these, um, you know, pullback slingshots, but that's not the kind that David used. So I, I went and made one and my mom kind of helped me sew it and put it together. And uh, the, the funny thing is, is I, I turned everything into Goliath. I had to. Because I had absolutely no control over that thing. Man, I would whip that thing around. Sometimes it'd go that way and sometimes it'd go back that way. So no one was safe. On a 360 trajectory, I just whipped those rocks. And for every time, man, I'd recount the story in my mind and Goliath was standing there 10 feet tall. That's about how tall he was. And I can imagine the chains in the armor. They weighed about 145 pounds, they tell me. If you want to know how much that is, come up to my place. I got 50-pound bags of uh, rolled oats. I'll throw them on you, three of them, and then have you do a jig. He was tall enough that if he walked along, he would hit uh, a basketball hoop. His spear was about 14 feet long, and at the end of his spear was a tip that weighed the same amount as an Olympic shot put today. He was huge. He was a killing machine. I know we dress it up in the, in the scriptures and we make it kind of nice, but he actually was a killing machine. Rabbinical teaching says that he was a champion killer. That means that he had to have successfully killed over 100 people 10 years in a row to get that designation. So when he shows up, and he's threatening the nation of Israel. Saul, who was the leader, who was the king, who was supposed to be the one who would take him on. He, as the scripture says, was back there walking back and forth vertically, scared to death. The scripture says his knees were knocking. And up walks a teenager. He doesn't have any armor on. He doesn't have any chains. They try and put some on and it's like, well, that's not going to work. He throws it off. He grabs five stones and he goes up and he says one of my favorite lines in the Bible, you uncircumcised Philistine, who do you think you are? That you would stand between the people of God and the promise of God. I tell you, prepare to die. The faith of that man, that young kid, I hope every one of you aspire. God, I would love to have that faith. There's a similar story in the New Testament. It's not a giant. It's 15,000 people. It's not five smooth stones. It's some bread and fish. 
But the courage of these two young lads is the same. And what Jesus is doing in this story is he's taking his 12 disciples and he's leading them into various events. And it says in this one, he wanted to test them. He wanted to train them. Because what he knew would happen is, is he was going to find a young man with the courage of David. And he wanted them to replicate that. That's what this story is about. Is increasing your faith. Because when your faith is increased, you'll find that your little is significant with God's much. And you don't have to have a lot. You don't have to come in and, and be able to tackle the world. That's, that's the part of the story. You just have to be willing to play. This is a story, there's only two in the Gospels where a miracle is told in all four Gospels. This is one of them. And if you look at some of the other Gospels, it gives you a little bit of a backdrop of what's happening. Jesus and his disciples had just experienced the tragedy of John's death, John the Baptist. He'd just been beheaded. And it was in particular, I would imagine, very sorrowful for Andrew because Andrew at one point was a follower of John. And maybe some of the other disciples, but Andrew was a follower of John. And so when John's head was rolled and, and Andrew, I would imagine like all of us, if your best friend got decapitated, you wouldn't be partying. You'd probably be just like, man, I, I just need, I need some time away. And Jesus says, took them away and went to Galilee actually and went out into the wilderness. Another revelation comes from the Gospel of Mark where we learn that they had been doing ministry day and night, day and night, day after day. They'd worked just all kinds of time with no time off. Everywhere they showed up, people wanted to talk with Jesus. They wanted to listen to Jesus. They were bringing people who were sick. And the disciples were kind of like an ER doctor that had worked about two weeks with not a day off. They'd slept on a gurney a little bit, but the reality is they weren't home in their own bed and they were tired. And so Jesus whisked them away. But the tragedy or the irony of it all is what happens. They go to this place and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw all of the miraculous signs. Jesus, never wanting to waste a moment, decided it's time to train my buddies. And it says in verse 6, verse 5, let's start there. When Jesus looked up and he saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, why Philip? Philip was born in Missouri. In case you didn't know that, he was. How do I know that? Because Philip was one of those guys that it was forever saying, show me. John chapter 14, Jesus talked about, I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again. And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to be with me in heaven. And Jesus goes on and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And, and Philip is the one who says, hey, Jesus, if you show us the father, we'll, we'll believe. In other words, I need evidence. Show me. 
So he was the person who's a bean counter. He's the person who always wanted validation. He's the person who was always calculating everything in his mind. And he knew exactly all of the resources and everything. He wasn't the treasurer. But Philip was a Missourian. Jesus sees all these people and then he looks to Philip and he says, Hey, Philip, where should we buy bread for these people? I want to feed them all. Well, it's evening. I would imagine they're tired. They, they want to grieve the loss of John. And they're away from town. It's about a 10-mile journey for many of them to go home. Now, for you and me, 10 miles is like, phew, drive, not a problem. Walking, you got to get them going. They could probably walk in a 15-minute, you, know, uh, you know, every 15-minute uh, mile. So they, they can go about four miles an hour. And so they're going to be clipping home in about two and a half hours. So it's evening, and so Jesus is thinking, or Philip is thinking, and Andrew is thinking, hey, it's time to cut these folks loose. You've taught them enough, healed enough. They can come back tomorrow. But Jesus gets them all together, and in fact, he says, hey, there's enough grass. Why don't you have a seat? And Philip is like, no, 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 no. There's not a porta potty around here. We got to get them out of here. Jesus says, no, he has compassion on him. He says, Philip, hey. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And then I want you to notice this next line. This is John's the only one who makes this statement. He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. If Jesus is going to grow a person's faith, he first has to test them. Why? Because the test is going to help reveal where you're at. He needed Philip, he needed Andrew, and he needed all of the other disciples to figure out where you're at. And by the way, he's going to test you for the same reason. Because he can never put you in the position of growth until he's put you in the place of revelation where you understand where you're at today. What's your faith quotient? What's your maturity level? How have you changed since a year ago? Are you more faithful today than you were five years ago? Has your character developed? How do you know? How does anyone know? And what Jesus does is he brings a person into a certain setting and he tests them. If the issue of trusting God with all of your resources is something that God says, I want to see you grow in, he's going to test you. If your issue is remaining sexually pure, then Jesus is going to test you. It's not that he wants to cause you to stumble, is he has to put you in the position to grow and to learn. And no one wants to learn unless a test has exposed. I haven't acquired that yet. I need to grow in that area. I need to be a different person. And so he comes to Philip and he comes to the rest of the disciples and he tests them why to reveal where they're at. But secondly, is the test will help you focus on what? A particular focal point. Philip needed to learn that he was asking the wrong question. Philip needed to understand and Andrew needed to understand that when Jesus asked them to do something, notoriously they would come back with the wrong question. 
And so he's orienting them because Jesus has a particular growth plan for every one of us. When I was pastoring in Fort Collins, it was a fairly uh, industrious area. And um, we had uh, on our leadership team a ton of executives. And I noticed that every one of them had coaches. And every one of them had a kind of personal coaching plan for growth. Every one of them. I hadn't been introduced to that. I was pastoring in the inner city, and I was just happy to work with people who had jobs. And all of a sudden, I get to Fort Collins, and all these millionaires, right, all these coaches, and they, I mean, they had everything laid out. They had a coach for everything, physical and emotional and vocational, and, and they all knew exactly what they were doing, and we would go on trips together, and they'd write it into their coaching plan and get it paid for. It's amazing what they got paid for. But, you know, an interesting thing is Jesus is way ahead of Agilent and HP. Because he has a coaching plan for Philip. Philip, I had a vision for you, and I, I, I know where I want you to grow. And so I'm going to lead you into certain paths, and I'm going to take you in certain areas. And there's a reason why. In this case, John tells us that Jesus turns around, not to Peter, he was fairly impulsive and willing to trust Jesus for anything. But Philip, no. Way more reserved. He was a bean counter. And he asked the wrong questions. Now the same is true for you and me. Your growth pattern is going to be different than mine. What Jesus is doing in your life today is different than mine. Because you're in a different place. Some of you are miles ahead of me in certain areas of your life. And so Jesus tailor makes all of your life. But the fact is he will test you and he will lead you into various situations. You may be in one right now. And in that moment, what Jesus is doing is revealing for you to have a kind of, if you will, a revelation, a, a moment of accountability. Why? Because it's only when I discover I need to grow that I will be willing to receive the teaching. The test reveals where you're at, and it also helps you focus on potential growth. For these disciples, he wanted to train them to ask the right question. What was the question that they asked? Just look with me. Where should we buy the bread? These people, for, uh, for them to eat. And he asked them only to test them. Philip answers back. Here's the answer. Um, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Behind that, how on earth are we going to feed them? Jesus, how are we going to do this? Andrew comes back in the same way. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a little boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But, and here's his point. How far can that go among so many? In other words, he's really asking the same question as Philip. Uh, Lord Jesus, how, how are we going to do this? They need to go home. We don't have enough. How are we ever going to provide? And Jesus wants them to understand and he wants you to understand. That's not the question he wants you to lead with. 
The how question is wrong for two reasons. Number one is when I respond with a how question, I am determining my capacity or our capacity to fulfill the vision of God with our resources. And that is going to limit what God can do because I don't care who is in this room and how rich you are, you're not rich enough to feed the nation. And how much wealth they had. The reality is they had two problems. They didn't have enough money and they knew Jesus was poor. And they also didn't have what? The ability or the availability of the bread. And when I come to Jesus and I lead with the how question, no matter what, I want you to do this ministry. I want you to serve in this area. And when we lead with how, the reason why Jesus doesn't want you to do that is because the how question inevitably focuses on our resources. How are we going to do that? How can that happen? How are we going to feed them? And the second reason it's wrong is because not only does it presume our resources, it presumes the extraction or the elimination of God's involvement. How are we going to do this? Not God, what are you going to do? Not God, I'm in. I don't know how we're going to do this. It makes no sense. There's not logic to this thing. But Jesus, if I've walked with you enough, I've seen you do things, I have a confidence in you. And reason why Jesus wants us to change the question, he wants us to move from how to where, is because a how question depends upon us. A where question depends upon him. Where do you want us to serve? What do you want us to do? Jesus, if you want us to disciple a whole new wave of teenagers, I'm in. Not, how are we going to do this? Teenagers aren't interested in the gospel. Teenagers are, you know, inundated by technology. Teenagers. And whenever we lead with that how, which is oftentimes a disqualifier, we're telling God that we're not enough and we're also telling God you're not enough because we haven't trusted him. Jesus tested them because he wanted them to know where they were at. Where are they? They don't know how to ask the right questions. And he wanted to train them. And he wanted to teach them how to develop the right answer. What is it? Here I am, Lord. Send me. Where do you want to go? You want to feed these people? I'm in. I'm wherever you're at, Lord. Send me. This is where this little boy comes in. The disciples went around just to make sure that there weren't any you know, bread stores. And Andrew somehow grabs this little boy. And it's kind of cool because when he went home, he said, boy, mom, am I sure glad you packed my lunch today? Because <laughs> I was the only one in 15,000 people who had lunch. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I was a little kid and I looked around and I'm the only one with bread and fish and there's 15,000 people and it's getting evening and who knows since the last time they'd eaten, I wouldn't be hanging around with my food. I'd be flying out of that place. 
I read an article this morning. I don't know why I read it. It was the dumbest article. Have you ever started reading an article and you can't stop? And you know this is absolutely horrible for my mind on a Sunday morning. It was. You know what it was? You want to know what it was, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I started reading. And I, do you remember the story in 1972? The plane crash? And there were 43 people on board. And uh, 16 survivors, 72 days up in the mountains. And they, um, plug your ears if this is going to bother you. Um, they had to take a vow to, for those who lived, that they could cannibalize the others. And um, I was thinking, wow. Do you know what you do when you have 15,000 people and one kid has food? He's dead. You've listened to the articles or to the um, announcements. There's these companies out there and they like to play on your fear. And so they tell you that the world's coming to an end and you better buy their meals, 2,000 calories in every meal. They, they teach you how to build a, a bunker. They teach you how to have ammo to shoot your neighbor. And uh, these people are kind of crazy. I got online and I was looking. It's like, I had a boring week this week, so I was reading all kinds of stupid stuff. And I, was, I was reading this article. It's like, wow, these people are really folk, sick. They, they teach you how to get all of the right material, where to hide it, how to build a bunker, how to have conversation with other people that are as scared as you are, and basically how to preserve your family. Here's a little kid. We don't know how old he is. And Andrew grabs him and said, hey, let's go talk to Jesus. And instead of running, and instead of protecting what he has, instead of thinking about cannibalizing what he has, he comes up to Jesus and he says, what? Well, it's not a lot, Jesus, but my mom packed five loaves and two fish. If you can use it, I'm in. And what that little boy knew is what Jesus wanted Philip to know. When you bring your little, God always brings his much. And when you're willing to say, here am I, Lord, send me. God is willing to do the miraculous through you. Now you say, why, why doesn't Jesus just create the bread out of nothing? The same reason when Paul says, without a preacher, how are they going to hear? Without you, how are your neighbors going to ever hear the gospel? Without you, how are your sons ever going to hear the gospel? The reality is God has chosen to work through us, but he's not asking you to be sufficient. He's not asking you to solve the world's problems. He just is simply wanting you to say, as a little boy did, here I am, Lord, send me. As David said, God, here I am. That man sickens me. This giant who thinks he can defy the army of the living God, I will not have that. And all God needs is one teenager who's willing to reach his hand into his pouch and to grab a stone and to fling it with the faith of a courageous man. And all he needs is a little boy 
who's willing to take his lunch that his mom prepared him. And she had no idea how she was setting this kid up to be the instructor to all of the disciples. What's the right question? Not how am I going to do this? But where? Where do you want me to serve, Lord? What do you want me to do? And when you discover that God will take your little and he will match it with his much, what happens? When you have a yes spirit, what happens? Everyone's needs are met. Scripture says 5,000 people. More likely, it restricts it. This is the way they counted 5,000 men. What do 5,000 men have? 5,000 men have 5,000 wives. What do 5,000 wives and men have? Probably a few children. How many are actually there? Probably 15 to 20,000 people. Jesus tested them. Philip, don't ever ask a how question first. Should we ask a how question? Of course. Those of you who are gifted in administration, those who are gifted in management, you're always going to bring that question. Just don't lead with it. And if you're a leader, don't let how question people dominate the room. Why? Because you'll never move outside of your own resources. You'll never move to the place where you offer your little and God offers his much. But when God offers his much, what happens? Three things. Number one, the scripture tells us that everybody gets what they want. Jesus said, have the people, verse 10, sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down and the women and the children, about 5,000 of them. And Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. In other words, everyone got fed. How glorious. How glorious to discover that even in our day today, we can bring our little and God brings as much. And what we discover is that kingdom mathematics has a capacity to expand far beyond our resources, far beyond our capacity. Number one, everyone got what they needed. Number two, Jesus says, hey, by the way, I want you to go out. I don't want anything wasted. God doesn't bring so much that he just kind of throws it into the river. Pick it up. Why? Because I want you to see that there's more than we need. And Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left from those who had eaten. How many disciples? Talk to me. How many disciples? 12. How many baskets? You think that was an accident? Do you think that all 12 disciples got to carry a basket? Do you think that all 12 disciples learned a lesson? When a little boy says, Lord, here am I, send me, God brings as much. And I don't know how far they walked, but you know what? 20,000, 15,000 people, pretty big space. Take this room, times it by 15. It's a pretty big space. 
And all of these disciples are walking back in, each of them carrying one. And every step back, they realized when we bring our little, God brings his much. And people's needs are met. Beyond your capacity. Beyond Ephesians chapter 3 says, beyond your imagination. Beyond anything you would think that when you say yes to God, God says, you bring your little, I'll bring my much. And everyone will be fed. Now, when we come to God, our temptation is usually to bring our strengths. I understand that. Some of you are gifted teachers. Some of you are gifted in faith. Some of you are gifted administration. But I don't think that what is, that's what this story is about. There was no one in this story other than Jesus that had strength. The little boy, paltry. The disciples, they had nothing. Jesus is not telling you, bring your strength. He's saying, bring even your weakness. Bring your inability, even your unwillingness. God, there's no way that I can forgive that person for what they did. It's not that I can't forgive them. I don't even want to. And Jesus says, good, bring that. Just bring that. Lay it down. Bring it in. Because when we bring in faith our little, God brings his much. I realize there's times we've been as a church wrestling with God. Where do we go with North Block? And Steve and I have been meeting with some different folks and having conversations and the deacons are involved. And we, when we have anything, we will bring it to you. But we're, we're in that place now of just kind of concept and design and, and, and realizing that anything we do over there is in the millions. I mean, it's, it's not in the one or two millions. It's in the six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever million. And I look at that and honestly, I think, oh God, I wish I was 75 so I could retire. <laughs> I, I, I think I could have enough faith if I was 75. I'd just like, church, I love you. Be warm, be fed. See ya. And I look at that and I think about that and I think of our school and I think of the things ahead of me. And when I begin to ask that question, how are we ever going to raise that much money? I can hear the Lord saying, hey, Mark, I got a little boy I want to introduce you to. It's a little kid that has faith. It's a little kid that brings his lunch that mama made. And when we bring our little, God says, I'll bring my much. And everyone will be fed. God is not asking you to solve the world's problems. He's asking you to ask the right question. It's not how. That depends on you. It's where. That depends on God. Learn to ask the right question. And you'll see with your little, God will bring his much. And the supernatural will be done right in front of you.
Let's pray.